Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series through the penitential psalms. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. So look with me in your Bibles to Psalm 22, and starting in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him, and stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised or abhorred the infliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember And turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to Him in prayer. Blessed Lord, You have caused all scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and never hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The 22nd Psalm, which we looked at last Sunday and then again this Sunday, is certainly a prophetic psalm telling of the passion of Christ. But it's also a psalm that is didactic, teaching us how how to cry out to God through the poetry of David's anguish. It was King David's words that the king of kings quoted upon the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David's cry in and of himself carried the weight of his agony. But Christ's cry, quoting from his grandfather, carried the weight of God's wrath. This should not lead us, however, to discount David's suffering. In other words, we don't come to the psalm and look past David who wrote this psalm, although we do look through it and see our Lord Jesus. Especially knowing That, as the Apostle Peter put it on the day of Pentecost, that we share in Christ's sufferings. 
But Christ's suffering, unlike ours, well, his suffering was different, wasn't it? Christ's suffering was atoning sacrifice. He became, the Apostle Paul says, a curse for us. Taking our sin upon himself. Giving us his righteousness. Well, that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is really the general theme of this 22nd Psalm. Victory succeeds suffering. Pointing ultimately to Christ's suffering. Ultimately to Christ's victory. The last words of this psalm are telling. Don't you love how the psalm ends? He has done it. This is not coincidental. Preaching at Pentecost, Peter said of David that David, when writing, actually foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. We don't typically think about that in the Davidic Psalms, do we? But that's what Peter said. He said, David was looking forward to something greater than his current day testimony. Which helps us better understand the suffering in the first half of this psalm and the celebration in the second half of this psalm. And when we consider this psalm through the lens of Christ's cross, we see that David's greater need is met in the one who cried out forsaken and suffered for our sake, but was also raised to life that we might have life. You see, what David foresaw in writing the Psalms became reality as Christ suffered and died and was buried and resurrected from the dead. And, and this is the core. This is the core of Christianity. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, he said, and I paraphrase, let me just sum it up for you this way. This is the summation of what Christianity is. Quote, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he was raised is key, of course, isn't it? I would imagine you wouldn't be here today if you didn't have some understanding of that, right? That's the key ingredient of Christianity. In fact, apart from the resurrection, Christ's death, though noble, would only really be significant in like some sort of historical trivial pursuit, right? But as the Apostle Paul confessed to the Corinthians, if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul said, if the resurrection is not true, you Christians are crazy. You're a bunch of idiots and I feel sorry for you. But if the resurrection is true, and it is. As Paul goes on to say, but Christ has been raised from the dead. 
A fact that he personally witnessed. A fact that several thousand, along with Christ's apostles, also witnessed. A fact that is confirmed by the Holy Spirit in his presence in us who believe. And so we assemble this Easter Sunday, as we do every Lord's Day, right? In light of this truth. Rightly has it been said that every Sunday for a Christian is Easter. That's true. This Christian celebrates the Sabbath on the Sunday. Why? Why do Christians not celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday like the Jews did? It rests squarely on one central piece of historic information. Christ resurrected from the dead. That's it. That's why you're here today as opposed to yesterday. And every Sunday, we assemble, we are telling something. Just by you being here, your presence today sends a message. It sends a message to your heart. It sends a message to those around you. It sends a message to the world. It says, I'm here today because the resurrection matters. I'm here today because I seek to glorify God for He is risen. This is the truth. And it's a truth, I might add, that is worth telling. As the writer of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and then the writer of Hebrews quotes from this psalm today that we're looking at, quote, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. The writer of Hebrews, in quoting from the 22nd Psalm, directs us to Christ. He directs us to Christ who worked on our behalf with intent. In fact, the psalm says that it is to tell of the name of the Lord. To tell of the name of the Lord. And actually, the the name here, if we look at this psalm in context, the name here is Yahweh. Yahweh, which is the four-consonant lettered name, or our theologians call it the tetragrammaton, the four letters that convey the the name of God Himself, His self-revelation. In that name, which we translate in English with capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, the Lord testifies to His glory, His self-revelation in creation. But so also in redemption and, pertinent to this psalm today, also in covenantal relation. You see, David is a covenant child of God. So David to say, I will tell of your name to my brothers, then does not mean that his brothers don't know his name. They they do. They know his name. It's not that his brothers don't know of him. Rather, given what we know of David's suffering from the first half of this psalm, to tell of the Lord's name connotes a proclaiming of his provision. David is in essence saying, I will tell of your name. I'm going to tell you folks what God has done for me. 
The Lord has heard the prayers of His suffering servant. And He is faithful to provide every single thing that He needs. David puts it this way. Look with me at verse 24. He says, For He, that is the Lord, the Lord has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. The abandonment that David had felt and the suffering that he had truly endured is met with the presence and the provision of the Lord. It's the Lord's testimony. David tells his brothers. It's in the name. What has God done? Who God is. And what God has done is not true, however, just because you believe it. We would not say, well, you know, the gospel's true to me, but maybe not to you. Said no Christian ever. It's either true or it's false. And if, and if you don't believe it, well then that just means you don't believe it. But it doesn't mean that it's not true, you see. It's true because it is true, which I know sounds like circular reasoning, but Scripture tells us that God is truth embodied. And so it is true, we might say, because He is truth. Let me give you an example from the New Testament. When Peter and John were drugged before the Jewish council, perhaps in fear of their life, Peter gave bold testimony. And here's what he said, I might add, fearlessly. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so, you see, like David, what Peter is doing there is he's telling the name of the Lord. He says it twice in just that one testimony. It's the name of the Lord that Scripture says that is divinely exalted. It's the name that Scripture says is above every name. It is the name that we call upon and are saved. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, come, no one comes to the Father but through Him. And this is the truth. And what David is saying here, and what I'm saying to you this Easter Sunday, is it's a truth worth telling. It's a truth worth telling our brothers. It's a truth worth telling the world. It's a truth of the salvation in the name of Jesus Christ alone. And in the name of the Lord, David says this to the church. Look with me in verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel. Now, look at the context and think about this. What David is saying and where he is saying it. He's not talking to pagans. He's talking to covenant children. Not unbelievers, but those who, quote unquote, fear the Lord. Not the wayward, but worshipers. 
to whom he issues a call to worship. And what's his call to worship? What words does he use? Here's the call to worship. Glorify the Lord. Stand in awe of him. That's the call to worship. And that, that's, a, that's a really good call to worship. And, and here's why. To glorify God is to rightly acknowledge who he truly is. In our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. He is most glorious. And so to glorify God is to respond to that truth. But when we see and acknowledge God for who he is, figuratively speaking, we stand in awe of him. And I'm sorry, but my mental picture of standing in awe, it's like my, my kids, here's my one SpongeBob reference, Brandon. On, I've got a few SpongeBob references, right? And so Brandon always reminds me, he's like, you know, you've got a few of those in your arsenal. My sp- one SpongeBob reference is when SpongeBob's friend, Patrick, you th- you're thinking it's going downhill from here, don't you? <laughs> Just bear with me, all right? When his friend Patrick stands and whenever Spongebob asks him something and Patrick goes, any of you have seen Spongebob, you know that scene, right? That's how I feel. When I stand in awe of God, I feel so extraordinarily unworthy because He is extraordinarily great. Oh, I'm standing in awe of God. And David is in essence saying this to the church. He's saying, I might add, the same thing that the prophet Isaiah said when he climbed up on the mountaintop and he looked out to Israel and Isaiah said, Behold your God! That's what David is saying. Behold your God. And that's what worship is. Worship is beholding our God and responding rightly to Him. And when the children of Israel, you may remember, when they encountered the visible and auditory manifestation of God's presence as it descended upon Mount Sinai, their response should have been this. But it was what? They, they cowered. In fact, Scripture says that they said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Which makes me mad every time I read that. Because to stand in awe of God is not to cower from Him, but to behold Him with reverence and awe. Not flippantly, but fearfully. A respectful reverence for the one, think about it, for the one To whom the seraphim cry out. And what do the seraphim cry out in heaven? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Which they sing over and over and over again. And as David directs the Old Testament church to stand in awe of God. It is your privilege and it's my privilege to do the same. That's our privilege. It's our privilege to stand in awe of God. Offering to God, as the writer of Hebrews puts it so brilliantly, acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And of course, we we praise the Lord in our personal lives, but 
this is a newsflash to modern society, um, we're not islands unto ourselves. In fact, in Christ, that we are, Scripture says, we're stones that God is using to build into a holy temple that Scripture calls the church. And we must understand that our part in it and of it is an integral part of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is one who is not divorced from the church, but is ever present with the church. And David comes to praise, not in the confines of his closet, but in the congregation. Look at verse 25 with me. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And this is with all due respect to anyone who's watching the live stream. I'm just going to pause here and say thank you. We're glad you can worship with us. But David's not at home watching the live stream. He is physically present with the congregation. He is there. He is with them. And with them, he's not amusing himself, but he's seeking to adore God, praising the Lord, fulfilling what God created us to do, fulfilling what God has called us to do, fulfilling what God has called and promised and fulfills in us to do, which is what? Which is to glorify and enjoy Him forever. Here we get, you see, even on this Sunday morning, here we get but a taste of heaven as the church militant joins the church triumphant. There's some good Presbyterian language for you. The church militant, that's us. We're still fighting the battle. As long as I've got breath, as long as you are here, we are fighting for the Lord. Not by the sword, not by the the state, but by the Spirit of Christ and through His means of grace. But when we gather together on Sunday mornings in worship, we're joining as the church militant with the church triumphant. We're saying, this is as close to heaven as we get until we're here no more. Though afflicted in this life by trial and tribulation, or by sadness, or by sickness, or quite candidly just by the consistent reminder of my sinful flesh, in corporate worship we are directed away, oh thank God, we are directed away from ourselves. (laughs) We're directed away from our self-obsession to the Lord. And as we come together, we come together in singular purpose. We come not as consumers. We come as worshipers. Ready, as David says, to eat and be satisfied. On the outward and ordinary means of grace. Think about this with me. As the living word of God is read, as it has done today. As it's sung, as we have done today, as it is preached, as we have done today, we're nourished. As the Spirit does His active work in and through the Word. It's why our larger catechism puts an emphasis upon the preaching of the Word. And it's through the sacrament of baptism that we who have been baptized are sealed and set apart for the Lord. 
witnessing it in the gospel of grace. And while we're not celebrating the sacrament of the Lord's Supper today, but we do regularly, in the Supper we see the gospel portrayed, don't we? And we taste and see that the Lord is good. And every time we assemble in worship, we pray with each other, which we've done today. And we pray, note that the Lord's Prayer is plural, right? Our Father. Even if you came today not even mindful of the person beside you, you've prayed for them and you've prayed with them. We pray together. We pray for one another. We even sing, which Calvin said that as we sing the psalms and hymns, those are just sung prayers to the Lord, lifting our prayers of adoration and petition as children of our Heavenly Father. And it's through this ordinary means of grace worship that we rejoice weekly over and over and over again. We're going to be here next Sunday and the Sunday after that. And Lord willing, the Sunday after, Sunday after, Sunday after, until the Lord returns, knowing that in Him our hearts will live forever. Well, right worship inevitably flows from corporate worship outward. In fact, that's what evangelism is. Think with me. Maybe forget what you've heard before about evangelism and think about it this way. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, fellow worshipers are welcomed into the church to join in worshiping the Lord. And if that's a new concept for you, it comes straight from the 67th Psalm, in which the psalmist says, this is what the Lord is doing. What the Lord is doing is, is He is gathering worshipers unto Himself. In fact, He says in crying out that God's way may be known on earth. His saving power among all nations, culminating in universal praise. And this is the day that the psalmist looks forward to, and I do and you do too, when the world cries out, let the nations praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Likewise, David says in our psalm, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over the nations. As it's translated here from the Hebrew into English, to remember and to turn, you could also translate that as to celebrate and obey. David desires universal praise and faithfulness on every square inch of God's green earth. That's, that's a worthy desire. That's our desire. As a covenant of child, David certainly remembers God's covenant with Abraham. And that through him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ then is a universal call to worship. As the kingdom of God advances, not by sword or state, but by faith. David says in the last verses here, look with me, verse 29, All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told to the Lord, to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. In essence, what David is saying here is that the 
prosperity, those who are rich in their prosperity, compared to those who are poor in their poverty, will all return to the ground. Or as we might say at a burial, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And so the question for us, and what David is driving us to ask here, is this question. Why then would we waste our living breath on the superfluous when we were created to worship? Why, I ask you. Why would we waste our breath on that which is meaningless when He who is to be beheld may be worshipped? G.K. Bill in his book, We Become What We Worship, observes this. Listen closely. People will always reflect something, whether it be God's character or some feature of the world. If people are committed to God, they will become like Him. If they are committed to something other than God, they will become like that thing, always spiritually inanimate and empty, like the lifeless and vain aspect of creation to which they have committed themselves. That's a sad statement. And David says, no, worshiping the Lord is primary. Everything else is secondary. He will tell his children, he says. He will tell the next generation, he says. And the next and the next, leaving a legacy, a gospel-centered legacy. He says here, even to the unborn, even those, he doesn't even know their name yet. And he says, it's that important. Worshiping the Lord rightly is that important, and that's the legacy that I want to live. It's a truth worth telling. David looked toward the promise that God had made, which we know was fulfilled in the the cross of Christ. We look back to that same cross. And it is in the cross that we find significance and life. And it's a truth worth telling our brothers. It's a truth worth telling the world. And so I ask you in conclusion, what is your life telling? What is my life telling my children, my grandchildren? What is my life telling? Let the legacy you leave your children and your grandchildren be not all the hand-me-down stuff you consumed or Probably what consumed you, but what Christ conquered. This is the testimony of the gospel that I want you to remember about me. And quite candidly, it's what you want me to remember about you. And our children and our grandchildren and the generations haven't even come yet. And it's this truth right here. Listen closely. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ Who lives in me. And the life I now live. I live by faith. In the son of God. Who loved me. And gave himself for me. No longer shall I live for myself. But for him. Who for my sake died. And was raised. Let our lives. Tell the truth. He has done it. Let's pray.
Almighty God, give us peace. That we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now, in the time of this mortal life in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day when He shall come again in His glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through Him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org. Thank you.